Hello Rebels! Welcome to our third and final, oh sad day, full episode of Oh No She Didn't. Since you last heard from us, we've spent the month in anticipation of this episode because today we are finally talking about our two main Irish ladies, our true loves, historical soulmates, literary goddesses, etc. That's right Rebels, today we're going to talk about Constance and Eva Gore Booth. You may have heard us mention them before because we cannot shut up about them. Constance Markovich, whose maiden name is Gorbuth, and Eva Gorbuth were sisters, Irish nationalists, writers, political activists, unapologetic female badasses, and total role models. For the sake of clarity, and we swear not out of lack of respect, we'll be referring to Constance and Eva by their first names throughout the length of this episode. It would get a little confusing if we kept throwing out Gorbuth and Markovich for Constance's last name, not to mention it would probably drive us all crazy, and those last names are mouthfuls anyway, so Constance and Eva it is. Because we need some sort of guidelines to keep ourselves from talking about these ladies for the next, like, 12 hours, here are a couple of things we're going to be thinking about in today's episode. So, one, suffrage. Yay, suffrage! Nationalism. Yay, nationalism! Militancy. Yay, militancy! Pacifism. Yay, pacifism! And sisterhood. Hell yeah, sisterhood. We're also going to be telling you about this awesome, cool play written by Eva called The Buried Life of Deirdre. That's a lot of things to talk about. We better dive right in. Yes. So I'm going to be telling you guys a little bit of background on Constance, the queen of our hearts, whom we love so much. Um, So starting off, Constance was born in London on February 4th, 1868. She was the eldest child of five, and she had two younger sisters, one of them was Eva, and two younger brothers, and she grew up in the west of Ireland at her family's estate called Lissadell. And so her family was pretty well off, if you haven't gathered already. Mm-hmm. Big house. Um, yeah. The Gore Booths were prominent members of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, and she and her sister Eva were educated by a governess in Lissadell, and their education consisted of the genteel arts, such as poetry and music. Constance made a tour of the continent when she was older, like still a teenager, but you know, older-ish. And she was also presented to Queen Victoria. So think Downton Abbey, but earlier and more Irish. A lot more Irish. Yeah, definitely. So, guess who was friends with the Gore Booths? Our old friend, renowned poet and occasional misogynist, W.B. <laughs> Yeats. He totally lived near Lissadell and visited the family. In fact, he and Constance were friends. Yeats probably had a crush on her at one point. I mean, who didn't he have a crush on at one point? Late into their lives. He also wrote a poem about them called In Memory of Eva Gorbuth and Con Markovich, which I think really fits your theory that he had a crush on. Yeah. I think on both of them. I think Yeats just really liked radical women, but then got scared of their radicalism. Oh, poor, poor little Yeats and his fragile masculinity. We could have an entire, we should make an entire podcast <laughs> just on Yeats. <laughs> it would be called Yeats, Fragile Masculinity Much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want to read the poem? Should I read all of it? Let's see how long. It's, it's not, not very long. long. I you can should read definitely it. read it. Okay, I'll and do a we'll, dramatic reading. And then we can discuss misogyny. Yes. In memory of Eva Gorbuth and Con Markovich. The light of evening, Lissadell, great windows open to the south. Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. But a raving autumn shears blossom from the summer's wreath. The older is condemned to death, pardoned, drags out lonely years, conspiring among the ignorant. I know not what the younger dreams, some vague utopia. And she seems, when withered old and skeleton gaunt, an image of such politics. Many a time I think to seek one or the other out and speak of that old Georgian mansion, mix pictures of the mind, recall that table in the talk of youth, two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. Dear shadows, now you know it all, all the folly of a fight with a common wrong or right. The innocent and the beautiful have no enemy but time. Arise and bid me strike a match and strike another till time catch. Should the conflagration climb, run till all the sages know. We the great gazebo built, they convicted us of guilt. Bid me strike a match and blow. Oh, thank you. That was a beautiful reading, Jamie. And a good poem, but kind of sexist. Oh, definitely. Also, we use a lot of Sonia Tiernan. Oh my god, so um, We use her biography of Eva Gore Booth, which is actually called An Image of Such Politics, which she gets from this poem, and her collection of the political writings. And we've talked about this before. She has pictures of Eva Gore Booth when she's older, and she's still a babe, so I don't know yeah. what Yates is talking about. Yeah. She looks really good, circa 1920, and on like, page 240. What is his deal with, like, as soon as a woman grows up, has a mind of her own, 
and he's like going out and doing shit mm-hmm. in the world. He's like, oh, you're ruining your image of, mm-hmm. that I had of you. It's like grow up hair, dude. <laughs> like just please stop. Stop with that. It's, it's not cool it's anymore. Nice to chill. Okay, let's move back on to Constance, who we love very much. Yeah. Let's be honest, I would totally have a crush on her too, so who am I to judge? Yeah. She was a badass lady from a totally early age, and according to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, they say, taking advantage of the family's extensive grounds, Constance Gore Booth enjoyed country pursuits, including hunting, driving, and riding, and became especially well-known for her skill with the rifle and in the saddle. So yeah, Connie liked guns and horses. She was intelligent, artistic, and also a total <laughs> fox. There are many reasons why she is the queen of our hearts. Mm-hmm, indeed. She also convinced her parents to let her study art. What a badass. (laughs) And she lived in London, studying art at the Slade School of Art, and then in Paris. And in Paris, she met another art student, Count Casimir Dunin (laughs) Markievicz. Count Casimir Dunin Markievicz. And they got married, and they had a daughter the next year, and they named her Maeve. Jamie, isn't Maeve a figure from Celtic mythology? She is indeed, Sophia. Very good ear, as many of these Irish names were. (laughs) Um, She was actually a sovereignty figure in Irish myth. Eva Gorbuth wrote a play about her too, I believe, but we aren't aren't discussing that one in this podcast. But one of the most well-known myths about her is involves a cattle breed. Tell me more, please. I'm pretty sure that she, I can't remember the entire story, I read it a long time ago, but there was, um, she and her husband were arguing about they needed equal cattle, and her husband had a really nice cow, and she was like, I need to get a cow that matches that cow, so she went and asked another dude if she could, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I read this a long time ago, so I don't remember it entirely, she asked another guy if she could, like, borrow his cow, and he was like, yeah, sure, and then the dude heard that she was just going to take the cow anyways by force, and he was like, you can't have my cow. And then she was like, okay, we're going to war over the cows. And it just became a big thing. Yeah, like, and then she had a lot some, of, like, warrior queen? She was. She was, like, a warrior goddess, and she had a lot of lovers, and it seemed pretty cool. Yeah. Way to go, Constance. Way to yeah. name your daughter. <laughs> anyways, back to, back to Constance and Casimir. They moved to London, and they totally got involved with that artsy Irish literary revival people that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And then Constance got involved in nationalist politics like a total boss. Yeah. The story goes that she was involved in an. The story goes that she was invited to an Anina Naharan meeting, and we talked about Anina Naharan, the Daughters of Ireland, right. in our last podcast. So she was invited to this Anina Naharan meeting by Helena Maloney, and she arrived late and was like fully dressed head to toe for some fancy high society party, like velvet cloak and diamonds and everything. And this didn't really sit well with the working class and middle class women at the meeting, and apparently they snubbed her, but she was like, uh, no one's gonna knock my confidence. (laughs) She was totally into it and happy that they weren't treating her differently because she was a countess. And by the end of the meeting, she became a member of Anina Naharan and was elected to the committee that would start Finn Naharan, which is the periodical for Anita Naharan. Dr. Karen Steele, our professor and fearless leader, wrote about Constance's column in, um, I think it's called Bonaharan. Bonaharan. I might be wrong. Entitled, I think you're right. I think that's what Dr. Steele says. And, yeah, probably. I would listen to Dr. Steele. We listen to Dr. <laughs> Steele all the time. But it was entitled Woman with a Garden. Right? Yeah, she definitely did. And uh, Constance wrote this column for the periodical that was ostensibly gardening advice for women, but was actually this super cool subversive allegory for militant resistance to British colonial rule. That is badassery for you right there. Militant gardening. No kidding. And Women Press and Politics by Dr. Steele. Our Bible. Exactly. Our Bible. So in Women, Press, and Politics, Dr. Steele talks about how the garden in the column was an allegory for colonized Ireland. She writes, The garden's enemies, slugs, snails, wasps, flies, were viewed as British soldiers, invaders that destroyed the flowers and fruits of the land. Destructive forces of the earth, such as heavy frosts, cruel blights, bitter gales, and blinding snow were predictably associated with the British Empire or its colonial presence in Dublin Castle. So remember earlier when we talked about Constance's partiality for guns? Yeah, that didn't change when it (laughs) came to Irish nationalism. She was all about that militant physical force resistance. What was that quote that she's really famous for saying? About shorts, curts, and carrying a revolver? Yeah. I don't know what it is. Look it up. It's something about wearing short skirts... 
strong boots and carry a revolver. Oh, oh yeah. yes. So the quote, Constance Markovich says, is dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots. Leave your jewels and gold wands in the bank and buy a revolver. I've seen multiple versions of this quote floating but, around online, but it's, that's the general gist of it. The general gist is short skirts and revolver. Mm-hmm. I love her so much. Fashion advice that women in Texas should definitely follow. <laughs> so she was like totally kind of theatrical about her militancy. And she was known for wearing these elaborate military costumes and a feather in her hat, which, you know, is not the most stealthy thing to be wearing, but ballsy as hell. And she was also a founding member of Kumanaman, the women's auxiliary unit of the Irish volunteers. Mm-hmm. And she totally taught these women how to shoot. So she didn't just perform... Yeah. All this rebellion stuff. She actually was actively participating in teaching women how to be involved, too, which is badass. Yeah, I think Helena Maloney, who invited her to the first mm-hmm. meeting men in Heron meeting, I think Helena Maloney talks about Constance Markiewicz teaching them to shoot in her witness statement. Oh, yeah, we read that yeah. in class. We read, uh, this is, like, super cool, guys. <laughs> I don't remember exactly who it was, but there's, like, recently been released all of these like witness statements from Irish political prisoners and one of them was Helena Maloney and we got to read the thing and it's like online. We'll put a link to it on mm-hmm. our Tumblr so that you can totally look at it because it's so it's really It's cool. really fascinating. But yeah, like Helena Maloney totally talks about Constance Markiewicz teaching people how to shoot. Like, I love it. Uh, oh my I God. I love it. And she also was one of the leaders of the Easter Rising in 1916, which this is the centenary of, and she was sent to prison with the rest of the leaders, but she wasn't an executed because she was a woman. And that's what Yates was kind of talking about. Not kind of. Definitely talking about his poem about... Yeah. yeah. And he wrote another he poem... He did, about her about, being in jail. Yeah, it's called On a Political Prisoner, and it's all about Constance Markiewicz mm-hmm. in jail. And, and again, he gets a little judgy. He does. Ugh, get, get over yourself, Yates. <laughs> so I could literally go on and on and on about Constance for the rest of the day, and I promise you we are barely skimming the surface here. We've said too little about her theatrical and literary contributions to the Irish cause, and there are half a billion other fascinating things we could mention. But in the interest of time, and because we want to talk about Eva and the buried life of Deirdre, I'll just leave you with one last interesting biographical fact. Constance Markiewicz was the first woman elected to British Parliament. Like, full stop, period, first woman. She was in prison at the time, and she refused to take her seat in Parliament because she was a member of Sinn Féin and had taken the oath of abstention. So not only was she the first woman ever (laughs) elected to Parliament, but she totally turned them down. Seriously. Swoon. Okay, Jamie, over to you and Eva. Okay, okay. I'm going to have to condense this a lot because I wrote part of my thesis, actually, on... The Buried Life of Deirdre. Speaking of Jamie's Which I just defended and and passed, so yay. So we will not be referring to her as Master Jamie for the length of this podcast. Excellent. Please call me that always. (laughs) So as you can tell, since I spent like a year of my life devoting devoting my time to researching awesome women like Eva Garbuth, I'm kind of, I'm I'm a little in love with her. She's my favorite. So I really can't decide between the two of them. Like Constance and Eva, I just want them both. But we don't have to decide. And they were sisters and... (sighs) They were sisters and wouldn't want us to pick between the two of them. They were both awesome in different yet equally awesome ways. Okay, so let me give you a little rundown of Eva Gorbuth's biography. She was born in 1870 in Lissadell in their big house. And she was a political activist, a writer. Um, She was really involved in suffrage and just was super inspiring all the things that she was involved in. She had some sort of debate with Winston Churchill, which I won't get into now, but it's really, really cool. And Apparently she won that debate. I'm pretty sure she won. I didn't. I need to go back and read, read about that, but I'm pretty sure she won. In which, our hearts, she won. In our hearts, she won. But eventually, so she didn't live in Ireland for the majority of her life. She actually lived in a really small residence in Manchester, England, where that's where she got really involved in women's suffrage and equality in the workplace. Radicalism obviously ran in her family. Definitely. So her sister Constance Constance's arrest and like the horrors of World War One, which was you know very pre- obviously very present in her mind since she lived in England at this time, that really inspired Gorbuth to become a dedicated pacifist, and this is really reflected in her writing. We'll see that a little bit, well, a lot in the Buried Life of Deirdre, but it's even more like she gets really really intense about it in her political writings, and she also had. 
very radical and interesting interesting views of gender and sexuality. Was this perhaps because she herself had a non-traditional romantic relationship? Well, Sophia, I would actually say so. So, Eva, she part of the reason why she moved to Manchester, England, and into a small house when she had grown up in Ireland in this huge big house, um, was because she met Esther Roper, who really became her inspiration and her well, she was her partner both politically in like political activism and romantically. And so she moved to England for Esther Roper. Oh, and, true love. And so for and they lived together for the last 30 years of Eva's life. And one of the cool things that it's going to fit in later with the buried life of Dear Jess, I'm going to bring it up now. But they together were part of this editorial collective that produced this journal called Urania. And this journal was super cool. They had some amazing Articles. They were. They pretty much argued that um, sex was an accident and formed no essential part of an individual's nature. Which I'm quoting that from Tiernan's biography of Eva Gorbuth. They also the journal also had like a lot of cool things about like people having spontaneous sex changes and it talked about reincarnation and it's just really fascinating and it shows that these people like Eva believed in some really really cool radical things. All of these things that Eva Gorbuth believed in, like her pacifism, her views on gender and sexuality. She was also got involved in theosophy, and she really, they really inspired her literary efforts, which we're going to talk about whenever we look at The Buried Life of Deirdre. That is so interesting. It's like she is way ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. Even now, this she would be considered like pretty radical, uh, and this is yeah. 100 years God, later. I'm so in love with them. <laughs> so can we talk about Eva as a nationalist? Did she live in London with Esther for most of her life? Or I guess you said Manchester. Yeah. Yeah, she lived in Manchester. So that's really interesting. It's like she's totally ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. Even though this is 100 years later, she would still be radical even, even I'm today. I'm so in love with her. As you should be. Can we talk about Eva as a nationalist? We can. So even though she lived in England for like 30 years of her life, it didn't stop her from becoming like from being so devoted to Irish nationalism. Even though it was, like, in a different way than her sister, because, you know, Constance was really militant and Eva was a pacifist. Mm -hmm. After hearing about Constance's arrest for her involvement in the Easter 1916 rising, Gorbuth actually, she thought Constance had died. Like, um, Sonia Tiernan talks about it in her book. And she thought her sister had died. That was the first report that had come out. And so she pretty much ran around trying to figure out, like, to hear more news, to figure out what had gone on. And then she finally heard that, no, she Constance didn't die. She had just been arrested but that was still you know a huge deal and oh Eva gosh, yes. Eva was knew a lot of the people involved in the rising so she uh, traveled to Dublin and she really and she witnessed firsthand the brutal aftermath of what happened after the British soldiers squashed the rebellion she actually it's really interesting because she writes about and um she writes a speech and she delivers it to London society afterwards and it's called a holograph account of a visit to Dublin after the aftermath of the Easter rising And instead of saying the Irish were wrong for taking this, you know, militant armed stance against the the English, which you would kind of expect from someone who was such a pacifist, Eva really instead tries to highlight the plight of the oppressed Irish. And she doesn't, she's very careful not to speak ill of the Irish radicals. And instead she tries to focus on the atrocities committed by the British authorities after the rebellion. And I guess just the British in general. Some the she really highlights as we talked about in our last podcast our beloved Francis Sheehy Skeffington, Skeffy. who was a fellow pacifist who was just murdered in cold blood for by the British soldiers even though he had no part in the rebellion and he's a figure who Eva Eva and Constance were friends with him oh man yeah the the Eva and Constance were like really big friends with the Sheehy Skeffington I think Constance. Eva wrote about it, but Eva said that Constance, like, why did they shoot Skeffy? And it's just, like, it's heartbreaking. But she I, We can't hear that line without, like, tearing up and, like, fluttering. I know. Oh, it's, it's, it's hard. But so she uses she Skeffington as kind of, like, in a, a, lot, a lot of her writing to kind of highlight just how awful it was. Like, we're getting teared up now, but imagine people, oh I imagine gosh. it would have been a very um, yeah. powerful. Report. I mean, it was. It was a powerful record rhetorical tool we Mm -hmm. talked about how this uh, his murder really like solidified um the militancy of the irish nationalist cause Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because he was a pacifist but like people were so incensed 
rightfully so, by mm-hmm. his murder, that they were just like, this is it. We're done. We're done right. putting up with this British bullshit. Right. And she also, Eva also campaigned really hard to prevent the execution of Roger Casement, who he was the only leader of the Rising that underwent a public trial. And I'm pretty sure that was because he had been involved in British politics previously. I'm can't remember all the details, but he, so he was the only one who underwent a public trial, and Gorbuth really wanted, or Eva really wanted to prevent his execution, and so she used him a lot in her writings, too. But it didn't work, right? I don't think it worked, no. So even though, even though she lived in England and was kind of separated from Ireland this time, she never lost that Irish nationalism. That That is so awesome. That ran so deeply in her family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We haven't even talked about her. their cool-ass parents, but oh, no. there's we just can, no time. We can maybe get to them later when we talk about um, their dogs. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what was Eva's relationship with Connie or Constance? Is it disrespectful to say Connie? I'm just going to say it. I love her too much. And a lot of a lot of people call her Con, like oh. Gates did. I, I've, I've slipped and called her Connie a few times, just... But I don't know. I don't know how she would feel about that herself. Madam Constance Markievicz. Yes. Um, they were close, weren't they? Uh, I know that Constance illustrated some of Eva's work. She did, which is actually it's actually really interesting because this was after the Rising, and so a lot of people thought it was really funny slash kind of weird that Constance, who was a militant radical involved in the Easter Rising, was illustrating her sister's play and that had like a lot of pacifist themes. So people were kind of like, "What's up with this?" What's going on here, Constance? We already talked about Yeats's poem. Mm-hmm, we did. Um, we already read the poem. But it's so, it is like so insanely cool to me that they were so close and mm-hmm. like so supportive of each other in like this really beautiful way, even though like we were talking about, one of them was a militant, one of them was a pacifist, and yet they like worked together. I mean, it's just so cool. You know we love to talk about collaboration, but we're really seeing it in such a like, Oh, feminist sisterhood way. I can't even talk about it. Can I, just on their relationship, I'm going to read a part, a a little section from Sonia Tiernan's An Image image of Such Politics, which is pretty much my Bible at this point when talking about Eva Gore Booth. I cannot tell you how great this book is. It is so much fun to read. It's really good. And also it's one of, there hasn't been, we haven't talked about how there hasn't been a lot of scholarship on Eva Gorbuth. We haven't even talked about this. We haven't, and we need to. So before I get into this, should I read the sad thing first? Read the sad thing, okay. and then we're going to get angry. It's, it's, it's about Constance's and Eva's relationship. So in it talks about Eva's final years and how after she dies, Constance, I'm going to read a quotation from this. It says, Constance was unaware of the nature of her sister's illness, and she went into shock when a telegraph arrived in Dublin with news that Eva had died. Grief-stricken, she did not attend the funeral. In a letter of condolence to Esther, she admitted, I simply could not face it all. I want to keep my last memory of her of her so happy and peaceful. She sent a wreath of Eva's favorite white and blue flowers. So these sisters really loved each other. And I know that seems silly to say, but there are sisters in the world who don't get along. Sorry, I have to take a moment. I got a little bit take too Take a moment, Sophia. <laughs> It's great. Well, you know what will make me feel better? Raging. Yeah. yeah. Let's rage against the patriarchy. Okay. So, as I was saying earlier, there hasn't been a whole lot of scholarship on Eva Gorbuth. There's been a lot more, I think, on her poetry, less on her plays. But what Dr. Dr. Steele mentioned, that a lot of people might have been not afraid to study Eva Gorbuth, but more reluctant to because she... They were afraid. They, yeah. They were... <laughs> Because she lived and had this romantic relationship with Esther Roper. And there are a lot of, like, older scholars I read during the process of researching my thesis who tried to be like, oh, her and Esther Roper were just gal pals. There's nothing, there's nothing sordid or weird going on there, which is, is not true. These women were buried under a headstone that had a quote from Sappho. I mean, can we, can we read the quote? Oh. it's great. It's beautiful. Wait, I don't know where the quote is. Do you have it? Yeah, but like, come on, guys! They were totally in love with each other. Yeah, they were. They were super devoted, and they in Urania they talked about they in Urania in that um, journal I talked about earlier. They um, wrote for and helped edit. They basically talked about how homosexual female relationships were better than heterosexual relationships slash better than all relationships, and they talked about this partnership being healthier, and it kind of prevented 
you know, gender inequality because it didn't, like, the institution of marriage kind of, you know, you you know. It was a patriarchal. Yes. Thank you for summing that up. Institution. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, the scholars who didn't, who tried to prove that or just didn't try to write, they were trying to find the man, as Dr. Steele said. Mm -hmm. They were trying to find the man in this relationship, and there wasn't a man. There didn't need to be a man. They don't need no man. Mm -hmm. And Sonia Chinin, who we love, and whose book we love, totally addresses this issue. Mm -hmm, It does. I'm going to read the, I'm sorry, Sophia, spoiler alert. I don't know if you got into the ending yet. But (sighs) she says at the end of her book, she talks about how Esther Roper and Eva Gorbuth had arranged to be buried together. Eva and Esther now lie in a single plot at St. John's Churchyard. As in life, they are together in death. (laughs) That is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia Tiernan, for your, like, beautiful, beautiful biography. We could gush all day long, but we're not. But, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this. Oh my gosh, we need to. This is the best fact that we've ever discovered in our lives. This is like, this is why they're queen. I'll give you the honors of saying Oh my god, it. I'm so excited about this. Okay, so in in an image of such politics, as I was reading it, I stumbled across this amazing little tidbit of information, and that is that Eva and Constance's childhood dog's name was Satan. Yes. What? Yes. Total badasses. I want to name my dog Satan. Gosh. But my dog's too sweet to name Satan, but that is an amazing <laughs> Your dog's name. name for- is Bellatrix. Okay. <laughs> Fine. There's a degree of difference there. Actually, Satan would be a great name for my dog. But um <laughs> it'd be ironic. It would be ironic, especially but she's a girl. So yeah. but it doesn't matter because gender is fluid. What? See what I did there? See I see what, what I you did, did there. there. Okay, that I was think great. As much as we want to just like keep talking we about We could talk these about ladies. them. We weren't joking about saying we could go on for 12 hours. It's been half an hour already. I'm surprised we actually held it down to 15 minutes each talking about I can't these awesome it. ladies. You should, like, the struggle was real, y'all. We had to cut out so much. I just want to talk about All day. All day, air day. Mm -hmm. But we need to get to The Buried Life of Deirdre. Yes! This play is so good. I I actually didn't, I mean, I want to talk about this play all the time. And I was going, we were going to do a different one for this podcast because I did it for my thesis. And we were going to switch it around. And then Sophia was like, I really, really like this play. Let's do it. And it's actually, I think, might actually be perfect because I'm so, I look at it in one way and you may have totally. I have coming to it with fresh eyes. Yeah, so you may have totally different ideas. So this would really, I think, be a good exercise in our collaborative reading project. I think that that's a great idea because Mm -hmm. I literally read this last night and Jamie has been with this play for a year. And so we're going to see what happens when an expert and a totally not an expert (laughs) come together. Gonna be magical. It is. Can I give some background on please, the play a little bit? Please do. Okay. So, as uh, Sonia Tiernan and then another scholar named Kathy Leaney, who wrote Irish Women Playwrights from 1900 to 1939, Gender and Violence on Stage, which is an awesome book, also. I'm just really, I feel like I should be like just trying to like peddle these books around and selling them. I, I love them so much. But, um, so there's kind of some interesting debates on whether when this play was originally published. So so the play was like officially published by Longman's Green and Co. in 1930 and included illustrations that Gorbuth drew herself. And um, it was actually published postu- posthumously? Posthumously. Posthumously. I never know how to say that word correctly. I have a master's student. <laughs> I have my master's degree now. I still can't say this word. Um Anyways. Master's students. They're human, too. We are. So it was Esther Roper published it after Eva, Eva died. But then there were other people who claimed that the play was performed in 1911, even though Gorbuth, like, kind of didn't really... She wrote, she wrote, she, like, um, I'm sure she had some written before 1916, but she had gone back to it in 1916, 1917, after the Easter Rising. So I think that really inspired her to include a lot of pacifist themes. Roper tried to get the play performed, and Yates was like, this is quite unsuitable for the Abbey. And so despite rumors of this 1911 performance that we really have no evidence about, except for one person being like, yes, this happened, there's really no evidence the play was performed. 
So we're just going to pretend that it wasn't. I want to perform this play. I would it's do so it. It's so good. It's so good. And it, I, I don't know. Like, maybe the staging would be a little bit difficult, but not really. Yeah. There's not a huge cast. I've seen, I mean, with modern, says the girl who took a few drama classes in college. I think with modern technology and, like, theatrical um, study, it would be a little bit easier to stage. Yeah. Should we it's, give a rundown of the play? Yeah, let's people? give a rundown. Should Do you want me to take it over? I Yeah, you go for it. I want to hear what you say. Okay. <laughs> I hope I'm not wrong, guys. Okay, so this play opens up at the altar of this god called Mananan. Mananan, yes. Mananan. It, it looks like Mananan. <laughs> yeah, like every single time I see it, that's what I think. But anyway, it opens up the altar of this god called Mananan, and he's Lavarkin. 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 I don't actually, I'm just... I say it how... Levarkin and Deirdre are, like, at the altar praying to the god. Deirdre is this really beautiful young woman who is, like, supposed to be the most beautiful woman in Ireland, but there is this prophecy that she will bring, like, destruction Mm -hmm. uh, and doom upon Ireland. We find out in the play that she is actually the reincarnation of this ancient king Mm -hmm. who fell in love with a beautiful woman and ended up killing her because she didn't want to be with him. Or she right? was in love with someone else. He, oh. he was he was overcome with jealousy and thought that killing her would be a better idea than just being like, okay, there are lots of women in the world. I'm a king. Spoiler alert, that was not a good idea. No, no so it wasn't. So Deirdre see, has this vision of this past life and she like remembers her past life. And then you find out that the current king, Connor, is actually mm-hmm. in love with her, but she's not in love with him. Mm-hmm. Is she in love with Nisha at this point? Yes. Okay, because she's in love with this other soldier named, warrior named Nisha. Which is the cutest name. I love that name. I would totally name one of my kids mm-hmm. that if I ever have kids. Who knows? <laughs> um, I'm going to name one child Satan and the other one Nisha. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, please. Deirdre's in love with Nisha. Connor's in love with Deirdre. Deirdre doesn't want none of that old guy nonsense <laughs> in her life. And then eventually she and D- Nisha run away together and escape because Connor was going to, like, kill them or something. And Connor it, would have killed Nisha if he found out what was yeah. going on. And Deirdre and Nisha wanted to be together. So Deirdre and Nisha run away together, and it's hella romantic. And then after a while like yeah they live in Scotland for a while and are pretty happy and then Connor send he finds out where they are and he sends this other warrior named Fergus who was a comrade of Nisha's and you know they were they were warriors together he sends Fergus to go bring them back with a promise that they won't he there are no hard feelings Connor tells Fergus to tell them that everything's cool he's forgiven them they can come back to Ireland and there's no harm no foul basically and Deirdre's like, uh, no, obviously it's a trap. Like, let's not do this. Connor's that would be not the dumbest keep... thing. Yeah, she's like, Nisha, like, listen to me. Have I not mm-hmm. given you, like, the best advice all of the time? I know what's up with this guy. And Nisha is like, but babe, let's listen to Fergus. He totally knows what's going on. We were we were old, old war buddies together. He's literally like, like, listen, I gotta go be with my bros. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing's gonna keep me from my bros. And, and suddenly, she's like, you're an idiot, but I love you. <laughs> And they kind of, both Fergus and Nisha, it's like them together just like exacerbates the misogyny of the scene because basically they're like, oh, Deirdre's just crazy because she's a woman, blah, blah, blah. She's just sad and has feelings. And the audience knows that Deirdre is the reincarnation of this king, probably has had more than one past life. She has. She says that she's had multiple lives. Yeah, and she's the wisest character in the play because she can remember the mistakes she made in her past life and because... I know we're going to get into this later, but because reincarnation is a thing and gender, people's genders are different throughout lifetimes, there's, there's no point in having gender spheres because if one, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know like, what you mean. It's, and it's, it's crazy because Nisha's like literally like, yes, honey, you are the wisest person I've ever known, but you're a woman, so I can't listen yeah, to you. it's so dumb. And the audience feels this frustration as they because they know what's going on. So they're just like, oh, this is so, this is the worst. Yeah, it basically is. Mm-hmm. But then they return to Ireland, and Connor comes up and is like, oh, you're still total babe. Why did you run off with Nisha and hurt me like this? 
And Deirdre's like, dude, I'm just not in love with you. Get over it. Mm -hmm. And then Connor's like, I can't get over it. I have to kill Ningxia because I have to defend my honor. <clears throat> Fragile masculinity. <laughs> and Deirdre's like, no, don't do it. And then the lights all go off or something. Something happens. There's some weird, like, misunderstanding. The lights go off. The soldiers attack thinking it's Nisha. And then they accidentally kill Deirdre in the process. While she and Nisha are trying to run away together in the confusion. And so then Nisha dies and Deirdre dies. Yeah, because Nisha's like, I've got to go avenge Deirdre's death. And then they kill him. And then everyone is dead except for Connor, who's like, oh, I'm so sad and, and upset. And Lavarican. Oh, and Lavarican. Yeah, they're, he's so sad. She's so sad. Everyone's so sad. And then they, like, sacrifice to the god Mananen. And an important point, okay, so when it's a distinction we forgot to make is that in the play there's actually two gods. So while it's kind of a love triangle play, it's also kind of just like a battle between these two gods. So there's Angus, who is the god of um, passion and jealousy and is the god of love, and he's the god of jealous love. And all of the men in this play worship him, especially Connor. Connor is like a huge follower of Angus, which fits with his whole jealous love kind of thing. And in Deirdre's past life, where she was the jealous king, jealousy obviously she was a follower of Angus then as well but throughout her she learned from the mistakes of her lifetimes and in this life she is a follower of Mananen who was the god of peace and pacifism yes and there are a few times in the play where Deirdre and Lavarakim who is the woman who raised Deirdre and she's also um like a druidess and a priestess and she also worships uh Mananen and I so, have thoughts about Lovarkin. I do too. We can we can discuss these thoughts. Mm. But so anyways, these two women are the wisest characters in the play and surprise of all surprises, they worship the god of pacifism. So that kind of tells you what Eva Gorbus views on pacifism. Were. Yeah. I felt like reading this for the first time um having talked to you about it before, mm -hmm. I was there was like this theme of fast pacifism really came up for me. Um and I just, like, I feel like this, there's so many interesting things to say about... Well, say them. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of jealous love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to make kind of a broad connection okay, here. Okay, go for it. And then you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> okay, so we keep hearing this talk of the jealousy of love and how violent it can be and how destructive it can be and like not not loving too much but loving in the selfish passionate way right. that wants to like claim something for yourself mm -hmm. um is a like is a negative thing and a, like a force of destruction and doom and uh then so both Mananen and Angus are gods of love but they're like different types of love one right. is very selfish and one is very like unselfish mm -hmm. and giving and I wondered if this commentary about the destructiveness of the jealousy of love isn't a critique of hyper-militant nationalism it could be that's really interesting because I was thinking like they're not they make a distinction between loving something and hating something mm -hmm. and there's they talk a little bit about the destruction destructiveness of hate in the final scenes where Nisha's died, where Connor is going to kill Nisha. And so, but but the real destructive force here is loving something the way that Connor loves Deirdre. Well, and also you need to remember that Nisha himself was a follower of Angus. Angus. But he was also a warrior. I think, I think you're really right in the sense that that could be like a commentary on militant nationalism because you're kind of... All, all of the 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 only characters who really who are follow who are violent in the play are the ones who follow Angus. Yeah, and so I was thinking, like, especially knowing how her response, her pacifism is mm -hmm. a lot of a response to like Easter nineteen sixteen and the Easter uprising. And I'm thinking, like, it, I don't think it's a straightforward critique of nationalism no. in the sense that like militant nationalism is straight up bad. Mm -hmm. I think that she's to me what she's saying with the play is that loving something so much that you have to claim it selfishly to the point of violence isn't ultimately good. Right. Um, no, I and that you can love, you. you can even love Ireland in this really selfish and destructive way. And especially thinking about, like, everything that happened with the Irish Civil War, mm -hmm. um, I feel like it adds, like, a really poignant and nuanced look at a sort of nationalism that can, if it goes too far, turn into a force of, you know, 
bad things. Yeah, I think that's a really cool, like, that's a really cool point and something I hadn't thought of before. And also, I think it really fits with the fact that um, in Deirdre's past life, she was a king and did, like, killed this woman out of jealous love. And the reason she's going through all, it's kind of implied that the reason she's going through all of this pain in her life now is kind of, like, to repent for her actions before. So it's showing, like, violence doesn't just end with one act. It keeps Mm -hmm. continuing, and it's this cycle. And Gorbuth, I think, is trying to get people to stop that cycle of violence because that kind of makes sense because the Irish Civil War is kind of, like, Mm -hmm. directly linked to the rising. And there's, like... Not just the rising, but if you think about, like, the history of violent Mm -hmm. rebellion... Um, in Ireland going back way far, like, I think that, that she's saying, you know, violence begets violence. And yeah. It's not, it's not something that can be contained between, like, the two aggressors. It's not mm-hmm. something that you can really just contain between Ireland and Great Britain. But in reality, like, we're gonna, like, the Irish are going to have to and are suffering the results of that violent nationalism to each other like we're doing it to ourselves mm-hmm. at this point like it might not even just be because world war one was happening at this time too it it could even to extend that just be a commentary on all violence yeah no definitely mm-hmm. um, and all war and especially if you think about like you know we we're in this podcast we've been thinking a lot about irish nationalism mm-hmm. but in a broader context at this point in time in history um nationalism in general mm-hmm. a- across Europe is becoming this really dangerous force. It is. Um and you know, a lot like World War One is the result of like violent nationalism. And um I mean Eva writing this right now and being such an open pacifist in England at that time was really and she wasn't she wasn't British, but she was she was still seen as being anti like anti-British nationalist in a sense because mm-hmm. they were like, why you you should support um, the British soldiers and be, I'm trying. What's the word I'm trying? A war to, effort. Yeah, be, be patri- It was it was be not patriotic. A, unpatriotic. Yeah, exactly. And so her, even though she wasn't British, they still kind of like. A lot of people were like giving her the side eye for being such an open pacifist. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's really interesting to think about pacifism. As a like. I don't want to say anti-nationalist mm-hmm. kind of movement. Because it wasn't or belief, in this case. But more like a transnationalist, if you will, kind of movement. That's true. I like, like that. When your ultimate ideal is is peace instead mm-hmm. of violence, that really asks you to bring down boundaries. And so maybe that's something we can think about in the play. Like, I mean, we see it with gender, mm-hmm, how bound boundaries are t- torn down. Mm-hmm. But, like, are there other ways maybe that boundaries are torn well, down? Well, something I was thinking about earlier when you were talking is that Connor is comes from Irish mythology. He's an Irish figure. But I always, whenever I think of, like, um, kings being kind of oppressive, especially in Irish literature, you have to think of British influence, even mm-hmm. though he's not a British figure. But you've got to kind of think of how a sovereign, mm-hmm. not that, I mean, like, you know, like a figure oppressing other people. And so Connor is just so used to getting what he wants and he in destroying whatever it is, the things that don't like, like in the end, Deirdre ends up getting killed because of Connor's influence. So he destroyed the thing he was trying to keep. Oh my gosh! Know? Yeah, and that could, that's I think that really fits with how Britain, you know, wanted Ireland so badly and wouldn't let the Irish the oh, country go, yeah. and then it ended up like there's. I'm pretty sure. Like I remember when I visited Dublin a few years ago. Like you can still see bullet holes. Oh and yeah, everything you can definitely all over the buildings and stuff. So. Like it just caused all. It's just so interesting how the how the British tried so hard to claim Ireland and then ended up just like destroying it. Yeah, almost, almost, but almost. Not quite. No, because the Irish are resilient and awesome. Um, but so I feel like that kind of that's true, and I like I really like how we've seen how this play is really working on multiple levels. Oh yeah, it's um, very nuanced. Yeah, like our. You know, I think that we've developed as readers throughout yeah. this podcast because I think at first we might have, our instincts might have been to be like, well, is it British or is it Irish? Like, mm-hmm. is what kind of nationalism is it critiquing? But now we're to the point where we understand that it can be It can be multiple both. things. Yeah, and that that actually makes it richer. It does. And so, and that fits with Dr. what Dr. Steele has told me again and again and again 
is that the Irish are so good at talking in metaphor and allegory and using symbols in their work, and it's so multi-layered, and that's what I had a lot of. At the beginning of my thesis project, I had so much trouble trying to grasp that. I was trying to put everything in a box Mm -hmm. and say, well, it has to be this one thing, and the fact that it was multiple, there were so many layers, really, really confused me, and now I feel like it's starting, it's making a lot more sense, and it's easier to see. But having, having doing this collaborative project with you, because you see things that I don't see, I think that really helps us realize that and, yes, we're looking at vice versa. Yeah. And um, I was, you know, it just makes me think about this idea that this play is really multi-layered and is working on all these different levels and like totally organically. Like this is oh, yeah. one of the reasons it makes it so good is that none of these layers are really competing with each other, but they're like building on each other. It makes me think, I mean, um, Jamie talked in her at the end of her thesis about the importance of um, recovery mm-hmm. and feminist recovery. And, you know, these plays aren't, this play in particular isn't um, as well known, and this I this reading of it that we have about cr- um, critiquing nationalism, not just historical, but like mm-hmm. how it's really a, this broader critique, critique that is so incredibly relevant. Now. It is. It's like this is why good. This is what good literature does. It just like it moves beyond boundaries, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier. And becomes relevant across time, across space. And it really talks about, like, important things that even though a lady wrote this 100 years ago, mm-hmm. it's still, it's still, it feels like it could have been written yesterday as a commentary about life today. Yeah, it tells us something real. That's mm-hmm. what good literature does. It tells us something real. And real things evolve, but, like, maintain a kernel of truth, I think. That was really well said. Why, thank Good you. Job. <laughs> How about you? What is, we've talked about jealous love and nationalism. What do you want to talk about? Well, you kind of mentioned earlier that you had some ideas on the relationship of Deirdre and Lavarakim, and I do too, and I didn't get quite, I, that's something I looked at a little bit in my thesis, but I didn't get to explore as much as I wanted to, and I feel like this would be the perfect opportunity to do that. Okay. Do you so, want to tell me your theory, or do you want me to tell you mine? I mean, I, what I really can see is, like, these two care, in, so this, okay, so this play is based off of the myth of Deirdre, and it's like a pre-existing Celtic myth. And the character of Lavarakim in the myth really is only there for like two seconds to raise Deirdre at the beginning and then is gone. But she's such a rich character in this play. She really and is. And she's made more, like they turn her, I don't, I don't think she was even a druidess in the myth. I might be wrong about that. But she, and she pretty much only appears in the beginning and the end. But I feel like her relationship with Deirdre, even more than Deirdre's relationship with Nisha or with Connor, is just so much richer and seems more well-rounded than, than the other characters. And I think that's really interesting when you go back and think of Eva's opinion in Urania that homosexual women, relation, like, relationships between women are privileged and are stronger than even, like, marriages. I'm just so glad you said that right now because mm-hmm. my theory What's is your theory? That Tell me. My theory is... and. <laughs> This is, again, I've only read this play very recently mm-hmm. um, and have not spent months and months and months studying it. But my initial reaction is that Lovarkin has feelings for Deirdre, which would, that are, like, romantic, that she's in love mm-hmm. with her. I think that she's in love with her. And, like, she recognizes that, like, age and, like, mm-hmm. current sexuality aside, like, they're not going to be in a relationship together the way that she may want her to and it may be much more complicated than Mm -hmm. that but I think that there's some homosexual subtext we love our homosexual subtext on oh no she didn't we really do I think that's a possibility I think even if people don't see that even if that's not what Eva Warbooth intended they I think their relationship is the strongest one in the play by far but there's this go for this line at the end after Mm -hmm. Deirdre is dead that Lavarkin is confronting um Connor and she says Nay, you wicked king, you have slain my beloved, the white flower of the world. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that language, yes, she could be talking in a very motherly way, way mm-hmm. but to me, that like language just... Uh, it seems romantic. Yes, it seemed romantic to me. Mm-hmm. And there was other, there were a few other phrases where she like said something about Deirdre or to Deirdre mm-hmm. that it was just, it was like just barely on the verge of romance and Mm -hmm. in a really beautiful way and so even if it's not like the straight up like lesbian thing that's going on I think that there's it's something she wants us to to notice I I agree also to go with that to the poem at the beginning oh yeah okay the poem is beautiful so the beginning of the play Eva 
dedicates, there's a dedication at the very beginning of the play to EGR, which is obviously Esther Roper. And do you want to read it or should I read it? I can read it. You read it. All right. Dedication to EGR. Was it not strange that by the tideless sea, the jar and hurry of our lives should cease? That under olive boughs we found our peace and all the world's great song in Italy. Is it not strange, though peace herself has wings and long ago has gone her separate ways, on through the tumult of our fretful days, from life to death the great song chimes and rings. You who loves music to the inmost shrine of art can hear the feeblest words of life with chords and discords, splendor and great strife, make beautiful these feeblest words of mine. Okay, so this so poem, this dedication is to Esther Roper. So it's Eva Gorbu's dedication to her romantic partner. And she's talking about when they met in, in, Italy. in Italy. Which is beautiful. That's just... So beautiful. That is, like, that's better than any other romantic poetry I've read. But, so I think having this at the beginning, I talk about this a little, a little bit in my thesis, but having this at the beginning, I think, really opens the avenue for readers to think about these, like you were saying, the homosexual subtext in the play. This isn't even subtext. This is just... Like, straight up, like, yo, babe, I love you. Yeah. yeah, it's really beautiful. It really is. So I think that definitely gives um, credence to your idea. Oh, well, thanks. You're welcome. And also, Lavarkin is the only character in the play that believes Deirdre when she's like, I am the reincarnation of this king. She's like, well, of course you are. I totally believe you. How wise you are, Deirdre. Like, she, like Deirdre kind of, like, toes around mentioning it to Nisha and is, like, telling... She mm-hmm. kind of tells him... But he just thinks she's talking about a random story. He doesn't really believe her. Lavarkin is the only one who straight up believes Deirdre. Um, they talk about women being wiser than men in this play. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something, which is interesting since um, the whole fluidity of gender across lifetimes thing. Yeah, but it was, I can't remember the exact place, but like she talks about like men are quick to anger and like only women can like see the mm-hmm. like take time to like see yeah I mean definitely followers of Angus are quick to anger and the women in this play are the ones who worship Mananan so they're inclined to talk things out yeah and so an interesting thing to think about is how this is this is a play that has a very modern distinction between mm-hmm. sex and gender. It does. Um, it does indeed. Because physical sex is not I think what is not being equated with gender mm-hmm. in this play. And that's why that comment about women being more more wise or prone to make better decisions than men. I think is is it is she's not saying like biological right. but like Just... gender women like women women who are people who embody that sort of way of being in the world regardless Mm -hmm. of what their body looks like right um they are more prone to peace and love that is not selfish and like in that way like I guess calmer that they're just like calmer and more reflective maybe Mm -hmm. and I I think that that's interesting because Deirdre in her past life was this jealous, angry man, and now in her new life, the life that she's going to repent in. She's mm-hmm. a woman and a follower of mm-hmm. Mananin. And at the end of the play, something I thought was really interesting was Connor does eventually seem to convert mm-hmm. to the worship of Mananin. And because he so, like feels guilty over Deirdre's death, which Deirdre ended up doing, but it took her a lifetime to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And Connor's doing it right away. So is that, do you think... Do you think that's a sign that the cycle of violence has been ended? Or do you think Connor's going to have to repent mm. in his next life, too, and start that's the cycle really all over again? Question. Or do you think because he's doing this now in this life, he'll just spend the rest of this life repenting? I don't know. That's such a good question. Mm-hmm. I hadn't. I really hadn't thought about what happens after the play. I think that for Deirdre, her mm-hmm. cycle of violence is ended, and yeah. she'll finally have that peace because she, she like, kept stuck to her principles the whole way through mm-hmm. and like really fought for peace huh mm-hmm. um she really lived walked the walk she walked yeah. the walk not just talked the talk but I don't know about how I feel about Connor I don't know if I I'm not like super inclined to think that he's going to be this peaceful forever mm-hmm. my initial reaction and I might change this upon further reflection mm-hmm. my initial reaction is no Mm-hmm. No, the cycle of violence isn't ended. He will have to repent in future lifetimes. I just 
and maybe I think it's what Lavarkin says at the end mm-hmm. where he's about to sacrifice or perform the prayer, offer the sacrifice to Mananen. And Lavarkin says, Connor, you cannot offer the sacrifice. Behold, your hands are stained with blood. And then he says, you know, he responds that she who has said, said, not so Lavarkin, she bade me to offer the sacrifice to Mananen. And like, yes, he says that Deirdre didn't say anything about his hands not being bloody, but I think that Lamarckham's observation of your mm-hmm. hand, like, you feel bad, but your hands are still stained with blood. Like, right. to me, that says, it, maybe if he really dedicates his mm-hmm. entire rest of his life to peace, maybe that will be enough. I'm thinking that the play seems to suggest that maybe violence has a higher toll than than what can really be cleansed by one lifetime. Right. And it's kind of, I think it's a commentary on, like we were saying earlier, how violence begets violence. It's mm-hmm. something that just keeps keeps continuing, which mm-hmm. is really sad to think about. Okay, I have a thing that we I yes. really wanted to talk Please. to you about because it was like, I think I responded out loud while I was reading this last night. <laughs> oh, okay, here it is, here it is. So Deirdre is talking to Connor like before the final battle happens. He has made a promise that he's not going to hurt Nisha. Mm-hmm. But she knows that he's not going to keep his promise. And he, she's, he's telling her that, like, he has to kill Nisha to defend his honor. And she, and then Deirdre says, but you gave a pledge to Fergus that Nisha's life should be safe. And he says, Deirdre, there are greater and deeper things in the world than one man's pledge to another. There is the true honor of each man to be faithful to his love and his hate and those strong desires of which the gods have made his heart. I was like, oh, when I read this, I was like, what utter bull. <laughs> I have and some... I just like, I really wanted to know what you had I to say. I have something to say. Okay. Tell me, so tell me. in this, so he, Connor says, what, hold on, let me say it. He said, he says the strong desires of which the gods have made his heart. Earlier in the play, Deirdre says, whenever she's talking, she says, it's my fault that I did this. It's not the God's fault. Yes. Do you, can we find that really quick? Yes. Because we can read it. But so Connor. Not a searchable document. Oh, I know. <laughs> so Connor, let me sum this out for you, dear listeners. Connor is basically saying he's blaming the gods for his actions. He's taking away all of his, I mean, I wouldn't say taking away all of his own agency, but he's basically saying this isn't my fault. So he's taking away all of the blame for his actions from mm. himself. When Deirdre is owning her mistakes and saying, this wasn't the God's fault, this was my fault. I made these decisions and I deserve to be punished for them. Which that just kind of, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really good catch, Sophia. Thanks. I don't, I can't find we it. We probably can't find it. This is a three-act play, but don't worry, we can just but talk essentially, about it. But essentially, essentially he says, like, why would the God, Nisha asks her, why would the gods, or why would the gods do evil? Yeah. When we haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. And she says, like, the gods don't do evil, men do evil. Yeah, exactly. So that's, she's owning her mistakes, and Connor's trying to push the blame onto the gods. I know. And it's, oh. it's like, it's like you have to take responsibility for this cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, Deirdre really does, and Connor, I'm not sure he does mm-hmm. at the end. I mean, he might. I like, I mean, there's multiple readings. I would like to think, because I'm an, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm an idealist. I would like to think the cycle of violence is ended. But, you know, realistically, it wouldn't. It might. I mean, I I agree with you. I mean, but even if in this particular play it does, there's always going to be another story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think we ask ourselves as readers enough, like, what happens after? Like, extrapolate this mm-hmm. and really think sometimes that's where the most interesting uh, interpretations can come from so of too. like the space after the work is ended mm-hmm. that's a really good point and something I think I, I've been thinking about a lot is Deirdre is the only one in the play who remembers her past life and so if everyone could remember the mistakes they made in their past would they still make them because it seems like in her case no, she's just trying to fix things. Yeah. But Although she's, she does say she's had like hundreds of lifetimes since. Yeah, then. and so does she, and it says it doesn't say if she only remembers this one, mm. or I don't, I don't, I know. don't know. So it's taken her a hundred lifetimes to repent for her. Yeah, mistakes. Dang, that makes you. That really makes you as readers think about <laughs> it puts what it, you're doing now. It makes it really serious. I don't know. I just 
like there's so much here. We're we're reading this from this like idea of nationalism versus pacifism, and we're really looking at the cycle of violence here. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other layers to this. I know play. there's so many. This play we, is like just ridiculously nuanced. I know the the stuff about gender could be like oh my gosh, I like I could talk could, about it. For we could years. do a whole other podcast on the on the stuff about gender. But I think I think we like much to our chagrin, we need to start wrapping it up we here. Do. But this conversation has been really great. It's been eye opening for me. I love in the play we've talked about these this critique of militancy, this advocacy for nationalism in the sense of like combating British aggression. Like we've seen how layered it is and how um, it's not just saying this one thing. And it's like when we were talking earlier about um, Eva's nationalism. Right. And her response to the more militant nationalism of her sister mm -hmm. um, in which she, you know, she doesn't personally espouse militant ideologies, but she can see the value, I guess, right. of that sort of resistance um, in certain cases. And, like, how she worked with her sister and mm -hmm. her sister worked with her. And, like, that's exactly what's happening in this play is that you have all these compete – not competing. You have – see? See? <laughs> we don't even think about competition anymore. You have all of these <laughs> different coinciding um, messages that we're getting. And you get, like, a polyphonous – polyphonous? Um, story that's much more interesting and rich and nuanced and real. Mm -hmm. I think even with all the magical elements in the play, it does feel very human and very real. And you can see how this is a play in reaction to a woman who has just seen Dublin and all of so many people she loved and her sister being put in jail. I can I can see how this is a piece of reactionary yeah, fiction. You know, but it's it, it's got this. It's um, got a real connection to human emotion. It does, and it's messy. And I think part of the reason how we were saying this play could have been we could it could fit in with pretty much. It seems like there's no, um, even though it was written in like the early 1900s, how it fits so well even now, mm -hmm. and how which is kind of funny when you think it's about reincarnation, how it fits in different lifetimes. But um, <laughs> that's great. But but I think part of the reason why it feels so so relatable even now in like situations in modern in contemporary times is because it was written in with such like human feelings mm -hmm. and and the response to such a tragedy and its complexity makes mm -hmm. it much more translatable yes um, to to different lifetimes to different time periods um, I would love to see you do some more with your like if you ever work with your thesis stuff again mm -hmm. how interesting would it be to talk about this play and its discussion of nationalism and violence and then compare it to like modern nationalism that violence. would be really really interesting you would that would be like oh, so that's like a great. dissertation level project well I mean if you I mean you know, if I come back to I'm, I'm graduating with my master's if I, I'm going to take a few years off, but if, Think about if it. I decide to come back, that's definitely Think something I'll it. look at. Because, you know, we have talked a lot about, I don't want this to be over. <laughs> uh, we've talked a lot about in this project how we uh, feel very connected to the efforts of the women that we've studied and that we feel almost as if we're continuing their their work right. by, by talking about their work. Um, and so it, I think that, that kind of a project that looks at, at the ways that these women's writing are still very relevant, like extremely relevant oh, so to relevant. modern times, it's just like taking that a step further even. Yes. And I think I kind of, as you heard the other day when I defended my thesis, um, the Abbey Theater, this is the centenary of the, I think this is a good way to wrap up, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, this 2016 is the centenary of the Easter Rising, and the Abbey Theater is doing this big, um, not... Revival. Re revival project, yeah. A big revival project where they're called Waking the Nation, where they're taking a bunch of, they're putting on a bunch of different plays from the Irish literary revival. And whenever the list of the plays came out, women in particular were extremely frustrated because there was only one play written by a woman, 
And I think only three were going, are going to be directed by a woman. And so it caused this big online um, response called Waking the Feminists. You can look at that hashtag and they have a website. It's very cool. And whereas I think, I think years before this would have just been something that was ignored, the Abbey Theater and people, it like created this discourse about uh, gender inequality in the arts, which is a con like, you know, a constant struggle people have faced. Mm -hmm. And the Abbey Theater actually listened and they had this open forum where they talked about things and they vowed that the second in the later half of the year they're going to put on more plays by women. And I haven't heard anything about what plays they're going to do yet, but I'm really excited to see if any of the women who we've studied in this project are going to be candidates for I really for hope so. I mean, Lady Gregory is obviously a Excellent choice. I cannot believe they didn't have Lady a Lady Gregory play. Like, I didn't. Just, I didn't see what plays they are. Did they not have a Lady Gregory play? No, I meant the one that oh. was by I, by a woman. I can't believe oh, it yeah. wasn't Lady Gregory. Yeah. But, oh wow. I don't know if I don't know if it was. I didn't look at the. I got oh, frustrated okay. and didn't look at the list. It may very well have been. But Lady Gregory and um, Eva Gorbuth would be great. Oh my god! I would love yes. if they did that. It would be really funny that Yates was like, "Yeah, no, I'm not going to put on her play in the Abbey," and just then. Like, but anyways, to, I'm getting kind of wishy-washy, but to wrap up, I think that this is the perfect time for this podcast because revival, especially revival of women's works, is such is so on the mind right now and so present, and so it's been really lovely to talk about. Yeah. In Jamie Cease's defense, she talked about how these plays and these women writers um, used their art and their writing to create a space for women in Irish... I think Dr. Steele said that in her book, too. Well... Dr. Steele Steel says all the good things first. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're they're using their writing to create the space for women and, and create cultural change. C create cultural change, and I hope that in some small way we've talked enough about women and women's writing and gender and feminism and all the things that we've talked about throughout this podcast, and maybe we're contributing to making a larger space for women. I would really love that. I would love that to be my be something I've accomplished in my life. High five, Jamie. Yes. I'm really sad this is over. Well, I think this is our last full podcast that we know of so far. We might, maybe we'll continue this over the summer, but you have another, you could plug your own project here. Yeah. Um, actually, stay tuned in the next few months for a podcast about women in academia. Um, it's in the works. It's being planned. And over the summer, you might get an update about it. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we may have a few mini podcasts. Like we wanted to do a reading of The Prodigal Daughter. And we definitely want to interview Dr. Steele about her upcoming book mm -hmm. project. And, you know, we might think of some other things because we both had a lot of fun with this. And we'll miss and you guys. We'll miss you a lot, our, our reader. Like a lot more people, I think, got involved in this than we expected, which is really exciting for us. So we just want to thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you. Okay, so for maybe the last time, bye. bye.